0: Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're partying like it's 1989. Our guest is Wendy N. Wagner, the editor-in-chief of Nightmare magazine and author of not one, but two books that came out in the last few months. One is a novella, The Secret Skin, that Wendy has termed a sawmill gothic. More on that later. The other is a classic coming-of-age adventure nightmare, set in the halcyon days of 1989 in rural Oregon. It's called The Deer Kings, and if you like It, A Boy's Life, The Goonies, Stand By Me, or even Yawn, Stranger Things, then you are primed for it. Wendy and I talk about why coming-of-age stories are so popular at the moment, about our respective childhoods in small rural towns, and how they can be both sinister and wonderful. We talk about the madness of high school football and the dark side of Oregon's shining progressive light. Oh, and I ask her for the best possible advice on getting published in Nightmare for all of you writers out there, not for me, honest. So, grab your BMX and let's head back in time to when summers were filled with joy and monstrosity. Let's talk Scared. Hi, Wendy. Um, Very warm welcome to Talking Scared.
1: It's so great to be here, Neil. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you. I mean, I'm I'm really glad we have finally been able to get you on the show. I wrote to you back at the start of the year and we talked about August and then my summer schedule went nuts. And then we agreed two separate dates this week that we had to change because of power cuts where I live, because Britain cannot cope with even mild storms. (laughs) Thank God that you are a patient person and thank you for being here. How is life for you currently? How are you?
1: Oh, I'm great. Uh, You know, I totally understand, uh, you know, dealing with power stuff. Uh, In February this year, my whole neighborhood didn't have the internet for almost a whole week and some people in the area had no power for like nine days. So Britain is not alone in struggling with winter weather.
0: We we don't cope well with, with anything outside our nice 10-degree bracket that we live in, yeah. Um, it's quite odd how many times I start this show talking about the weather. I'm so British. So <laughs> you're in Oregon, which is great, yeah. because I plan to talk a lot about Pacific Northwest Gothic, which is a ludicrously specific subgenre. but I'm going with it.
1: <laughs> yes, I love it.
0: <laughs> You've got two published pieces of horror, gothic-y, fiction this year that we can talk about so in October you published your novella The Secret Skin which is a haunted house tale of a very particular type but before that back in the summer you released The Deer Kings which is like this quintessentially summer horror novel and I was immediately tantalized by this and it will become obvious why when you give us a brief synopsis of the book my listeners will understand immediately why I was so so into this novel but if you don't mind Start us off there. Introduce us to the Deer Kings.
1: Sure. Well, the Deer Kings is is one of those kinds of stories that goes back and forth between two periods of time. So um there's parts that are told about a group of kids growing up in really rural economically impacted Oregon. And it's like 1989. So it's got this really, you know, kids on bikes kind of vibe. Um, And these kids, you know, it was different back in the 80s. Your parents went off and left you for a long time. And these kids are really oddballs. They don't really fit in in their town. And all they really have is each other. Which it's good that they have each other because um, a guy moves into their neighborhood who's like this really vicious and sadistic drug dealer. And he kind of winds up targeting the kids to like bully them. So they pull together and they use like their interest in the supernatural to create their own supernatural protector to help them uh, deal with this bully. And it's, it's, you know, it's this giant deer that runs around and protects them. Um, But unfortunately, other people in the town find out about this creature and they want to use it for their own nefarious purposes. And so in the 80s, there's sort of like this big showdown. And then years later, as adults, these kids wind up having to come back to their hometown and they find out, oh, this thing that we thought was gone this this creature that we created it's still around and people are still using it for their own nefarious deeds and there's some nasty shenanigans going down and once again we're all in danger and they have to come together to like deal with this town and it's kind of it, it's really fun writing these characters from these two very different points in their life cuz i mean if you think about it like when you were 12 or 13 You were, there's so much of yourself there, but then so much happens to you so that you're a very different person at the same time. And so being put back together with your childhood friends is always like a really weird experience. So it was really great getting to go back and forth between building this friendship and then like looking at these kids later, looking at this friendship and being like, oh, gosh i don't know what to do (laughs) and of course we have monsters and scary deer and stuff
0: (laughs) well yeah i mean i didn't realize that deer could be scary until i read this book but um (laughs) i thought about this i thought about how to do this conversation i've decided we're going to deal with the elephant in the room right away and kind of free ourselves from the shackles of this so there is a big sort of clown shaped shadow that unavoidably (laughs) looms over all coming-of-age stories. And, you know, Stephen King's It, or as my listeners know it, the book I crowbar into every conversation. My favourite book, <laughs> essentially.
1: I I love it.
0: Well, thank you. All the best people do. Um, there's a lot of people <laughs> sitting at home now or on treadmills listening to this, just rolling their eyes saying, oh God, here he goes again. <laughs> Quite the opposite. I don't want to talk about It because I think it's a disservice to your book. Because... There are superficial similarities. Kids on bikes, groups of outsider kids getting together to not necessarily fight, but to confront a supernatural menace. The the the, the two timeline thing, the back and forth, you know, they all speak to, to it. But there's an awful lot of difference as well. Uh, more difference than there is similarity, I would say. Thank you. however you must have felt the pressure of that surface similarity when you wrote or when you were writing the dear kings
1: oh definitely but also you know there i read a whole slug of great coming of age books when i was kind of thinking about this project um There's a lot of writers who are about the same age as Stephen King who all have books that are a lot alike. Uh, Probably the most famous is maybe um, Robert R. McCammon's Boy's Life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then Dan Simmons has one and uh, Jeffrey Ford has one. And so Joe Lansdale has a couple of books that really feel very much like it. So there's this huge tradition and they're usually often set in the 1950s, which I think is a time when very much like the 80s where kids had a lot more, you know, that there was no helicopter parenting back then. Yeah. Uh, and so I guess I just felt like this book was really following in a great tradition of bigger kids having adventure ideas. Um, which, I mean, you can look back and be like, well, Mark Twain and and his Huckleberry Finn book, it's kind of the same sort of principle. There's, you know, so many, many wonderful books about kids having adventures. Um, and then it's it's just so fun to put them in horrible, horrible, horrible situations.
0: That's actually my next question. Because it's a general question. It's about culture rather than just your book. But you you said you've done this bit of a survey, so you might be in a good place to, to answer this. But why do you think that the coming of age story has come so much back into the zeitgeist, particularly in, in horror? You know, why do we keep returning to And why have we started returning again to kids on bikes fighting evil?
1: Well, I, I think... There's a lot of different reasons why this keeps showing up. Um, I think a lot of it is that a lot of the people who were my age in the 80s and so they grew up with. It, and, uh, you know, Stand By Me, and E.T., and now they're the ones who are making movies and TV shows. You know, you the other elephant in the room, when you talk about coming-of-age things with kids on bikes, it's got to be Stranger Things, which has really dominated the conversation about, um, you know, kids on bike. And I think, uh, you know, Those guys are the same age as me. And so they're looking back on the same deep wellsprings of nostalgia and trying to make sense of what it meant growing up. And maybe I think a lot of us nowadays, we have kids of our own that are not being raised like that. And so I feel that makes the nostalgia even more powerful, like contrasting like our experiences as young people versus the experiences of young people today. And I think you know, there's a real sense that when we were kids, there was just a whole different kind of danger and excitement that we lived with. And it, it may be to us seems kind of more fun versus, you know, we look at like our kids here in the United States, at least. And I mean, they're going to... They're going to school and they're doing, you know, sheltering in place while they, you mm. know, practice for for guns being shot at them. And so it just seems like, I think a lot of us think back and like, oh, the 80s just seem like such a freer, weirder time and such a better time to be a kid. And I think it's on our minds. Um, And then also, I think there's also this sense where, Once you become an adult, you sort of start to think about your abilities and your boundaries of what you could do. And you always wonder, um, you know, if you were put in a terrible situation, like, what would you do and how would you cope? I think just that idea alone was a, a huge part of like the zombie renaissance, right? Um, and so this is sort of a different way of dealing with it. It's like when you, you think back to like when you're a kid and you're maybe a little bit more physically capable than you are today as like a, a stiff and the sore old adult. And you're like, man, I could run so fast. You could do all these things. What, what could I have done if I had some freedom? What could my, my buddies have done? And you remember the things that you did do and they seem almost legendary. And you're like, let's just kick that up a notch and, and really make it fun. And of course, too, there is also like the theme, just what is more evil than somebody that wants to target kids, right? So it it has, there's always going to have this epic feeling to having a villain that targets kids um, against kids. And, And they're in like the worst possible situation because it's like they can't drive away. They can't buy a gun. They can't. Uh, you know, people don't take kids seriously, so they often feel very cut off from, like, community support. So just, like, the scale is very David and Goliath, and I think that's really irresistible to write about.
0: Well, that's a great answer. I mean, my favorite thing about Covenant of Age Stories, um, I love the fact that it's almost like two worlds. The the childhood landscape is almost it's almost a different existence to the adults around them yeah, yeah and you get you get that across really well in this book because you know a lot of these parents are are largely absent both both literally and figuratively from the the lives of these children they, they barely appear in the story with the exception of of Stacey's mum um not to quote the song you know they um <laughs> they, they don't really appear in the story and, and the kids have this entire different lens onto onto life, which I I love that idea. I think it's great. it's almost like it's like a magical world living alongside the adult world. Um so yeah, so I'm really happy that, that Coming of Age is coming back in a massive way and it really does seem to be. I hate Stranger Things for the record. <laughs> I just I just think the kids are so boring. They're just not interesting characters. It's like, I don't know why they've done it that way. They're just dull but I won't get on my uh I won't get on my saltbox. What I will ask to potentially trite question, this one. But how much of your own childhood is invested in these kids? Is there any one that is you or are you split across the group or at all?
1: Oh, my gosh. There's so much of me in all of these kids. Um, I think definitely, like, mostly I'm a lot like Gary, right? Like, he's... um, he wants to be a writer. He kind of, he really wants to help his family a lot. He's just a really good kid. Um, But then I also think there's so much of me that's like Stacy too. Like she's such a, she's such a great mix. Like I think there's a, there's a line in the book right when they're first starting to become friends. And so Stacy is best friends with Gary's sister, Jill. And so Gary doesn't, Gary's been around Stacy, you know, for years, but he's never hung out with her. And Stacy winds up meeting these two boys, um, Jordan and David. And they're like, David is like, a true troublemaker kid, you know, like he maybe is a little bit of a bully himself. Um, anyway, they all wind up coming together for the first time this summer afternoon. And um, Stacy like says something about how excited she is to like use a Ouija board and how much she loves the music from horror movies. And like Gary just looks at her and he's like, he's like taking in you know her like matching pink scrunchie and like everything her like button down shirt and she just like looks so prim and proper and then it turns out she's like an absolute freaky geek like he is and it totally like he's like whoa (laughs) so stevie and like her love for all things horror is definitely a total wendy wagner kind of thing okay it's also it's kind of hilarious that you mentioned the song stacy's mom because when i was trying to like come up with what the names should be for these characters i was like well what were like really common names in that time and i i actually i had a friend named stacy so that song i mean that that name like immediately popped out at me and then of course there's a lot of scenes with Stacey's mom. So there's a lot of times where I would type <laughs> Stacey's mom and every single time that song would jump into my head. And I thought, maybe I should change her name. But then I was like, it's kind of a fun Easter egg. I'm going to leave it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I like that. Little, little giggle each time you wrote it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I grew up in basically like, the real life version of the place where they lived. So like, you know, my parents were very poor. Uh, We really did live in the middle of nowhere in a house that like when it rained, it would, you know, sprout mushrooms on the floor and things like that. So there's a ton of my growing up that is in that book. Even the villain is like inspired by our neighbor, who, um, like a very for a little while, this couple lived across the street from us, and they—well, street's a strong word—but uh, he was like rode motorcycles and had like scary parties, and you one night um there was a big scary party we were getting ready for bed at like 11 or so and a kid we knew he had actually like dated my sister years before he came to our house in the middle of the night and he had been stabbed which actually happens in the novel and my mom had to like patch him up so yeah there's a ton of my my young life in this book
0: wow right okay um Did not expect that much autobiography to be honest, because it's it's quite a it's quite a harsh experience some of these kids have. So I was kind of hoping you weren't going to say, "Yeah, it's all me." (laughs) Um, (laughs) But it's funny, it's Um, funny you mention the sort of town though, because I was going to ask. You know, obviously, back in it, you know, Derry King created that by just saying, you know, right, we're now calling Bangor Maine Derry. That was the only (laughs) thing he did, Uh, and I wondered whether whether Kingston Oregon had it at its it's real world analog. I Googled it and, and there is a tiny Kingston, Oregon, but it's it's a, an unincorporated community of like four houses or something. So I'm guessing that's not it, but it, it's cool to know it is based on a real place.
1: It really is, yeah. Um, I should have Googled Kingston, Oregon. Um, I just assumed I've driven around a lot of Oregon and I was like, I don't think there's a Kingston. I'm going to use that name. <laughs>
0: I don't really need to worry. I think there's like, like I said, about four houses there from what I've seen. If anyone by any chance is listening from Kingston, Oregon, I apologise, but the odds <laughs> will be very small. The town though, I, I love well-fleshed out small towns. Just love small town horror. And this is a really well-fleshed out small town because it's that cool thing where you're dropped in and you start to kind of work out that that road leads to that road and this leads to that and there are landmarks and you get a picture in your head. I love that stuff. But it's a creepy town as well. So early on, there's a scene where Gary, when he comes back to Kingston, because he's as an adult, because his wife gets a job there, he, he spots someone who looks just like someone he grew up with. And he says that anywhere else, it might have been a coincidence. But in Kingston, there is the very real chance that it's a relative or even that person's kid. Now, that really resonated with me because I grew up in a very small depressed town in Northern England, and I I know how small gene pools can get. And I also know that there is this weird sense that everyone is connected. And if you leave and you come back, you just really do not feel part of things ever again. As Tom Wolfe said, you can never go home again. But that connection, that sense of this network of people knowing each other, that, that can be a comforting thing, or it can be, as is the case in Deer Kings, quite a sinister thing, County.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I was born in eastern Washington in a small town where actually, you know, two roads are named for my family, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's one of those extremely tight knit small farming towns. And then we wound up moving to Oregon because of my dad and, and getting jobs and things like that. So then um we when we moved down there we then were inserted into these like really tight knit communities. And even though like, like in high school, I was in this town and I knew some kids, but I always felt so shut out. Like there was, they lived in a totally different reality than I did. Uh, And they would, it was very, It wasn't terrible because there were enough other outsider kids that we were like happy together. And I think like we didn't care about it so much. But looking back at it, it really was like there were the people who had grown up there and the people who belonged there. And then there were the rest of us. And it's funny because even today, like, you know, I'm friends with people I went to high school with on Facebook and it's like, I'll see their posts and they're still all like talking to each other on Facebook and they're all like still connected and I'm not. And it's just kind of, yeah, it's totally like one of those things where you, once you leave, you never get back in or like you never got in in the first place. It's it's really small towns. are just a different world. <laughs>
0: Definitely. Like I say, even though it's a completely transatlantic experience, there is so much to be said about the similarity between my upbringing and the upbringing of the kids in this story, and presumably yourself as well. It it really does map really well. Um, (laughs) And that was one of the favourite parts of the book for me, because quite aside from this supernatural entity, which we'll get to, in the present day part of the story and to an extent in the in the you know the flashbacks with the kids but certainly in the present day there's this whole other strand of threat that intrudes and it's got it's to do with that network of people who know each other because you get this creeping idea of an entire town conspiring against an individual and it's it's nightmarish and and all too easy to imagine and and to me (laughs) that part of the book had real shades of of like other paranoid horror stories, things like, I don't know, Rosemary's Baby or The Midwich Cuckoos, or the one that kept occurring to me is Thomas Tryon's Harvest Home.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was actually where this book started from, was the idea of those creepy stories where you feel like there's something going on, but you can't put your finger on it. I think you know a great example of this, even though it's a funny movie, is Hot Fuzz, right <laughs> like you know watching that that something's going on that's
0: a that is a great example that is a fantastic example. I hadn't thought of that yeah exactly <laughs>
1: uh, i I always wanted to like tell people like, well, this book is just like hot fuzz but serious and gloomy. <laughs> uh, yeah. So like that was actually like the seed of the idea for this book was, I mean, probably from hot fuzz. Cause when my daughter was younger, she watched it all the time. It's a family favorite. Um, and which obviously hot fuzz is totally, totally like a comedic retelling of the wicker man. Right. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: and so it's like, the idea of this community where everybody's in on this secret uh, except you, except you could maybe if you sold your soul to the devil, you could be a part of it. Maybe, (laughs) you know, like that. I think like that's a big part of what the present day timeline is
0: about. Well, yes. And, and that can't help but center on football. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so there's this whole cult, and I mean that word in in several different ways. There's this cult kind of that's focused on the school and the football team. Now, I only know what a booster club is from watching Friday Night Lights. (laughs) Go Panthers. And I thought they were scary in that. But by God, your version of the boosters club. I mean, do things get that crazy over kids playing sports in these towns? It seems insane to me.
1: Uh, you know I don't know if it's like that nowadays I know that in a lot of towns like when I was a kid people were pretty excited about the football team in like 1990 it had gone to the state level it had done really well so it was the kind of thing that really brought the community together and people were active in the booster clubs and they were very excited about going to football games in a mostly a wholesome and pleasant way, although of course there's always like these rivalries between nearby towns. And those could kind of feel a little bit sketchy. You're like, um, these are high school kids, like, don't wish for bad things to happen to them just because they're on the other team. <laughs> um, but of course you mentioned Friday Night Lights, which I've only seen a couple episodes of the TV show, which is yeah. great. But I've seen the movie and read the book. And the book is one of my Oh, it is so good. um, And it was published quite a long time ago. I think another movie that was inspired by it. Oh, crud. I just forgot his name. There is another movie in the, that was made in the 90s that I'm pretty sure was inspired by it. And then they finally made a movie of Friday Night Lights, um, which is pretty good too. And anyway, so because that's one of my favorite books and I just thought like, Oh, it would be really fun to take that Texas football fever um and move it to Oregon. I and, and in fact actually in the latest edition of Friday Night Lights there's a chapter where he goes back to the town um you know where he spent a year living following this like insane like this intense um football fever that these people have and that's really dropped down quite a lot like you know I I think things like the internet and having more stuff to do probably has sort of diluted that but it's still a weird phenomenon and I know like my own small town here and I much less small town I live in like a regular sized suburb of Portland Oregon now and like we have a really big football stadium for our high school football team and they just redid it and it's like beautiful. And you know, it it is obviously when you go by it, you're like, wow, they really invest a lot of resources and care into high school football. So it's not like, it's obviously the football fever in my book is, is a very fictionalized version of what can happen in small town America. But Still, I don't know. <laughs> it could <did> happen, <laughs> I think.
0: Yeah, it's just so weird to put that much pressure and that much responsibility for civic pride onto children. It's a really strange thing to do. Right. Well, to me to me it is anyway. Right. So, we we've, we've kind of set the scene with this town. Let's get into this supernatural thing because it's really interesting because it's very different to what kids normally face um in these kinds of stories so obviously we won't go too far into it but you've already kind of said enough for a start how did you come up with this idea of these kids creating their own well i mean for a better word a god you know because <laughs> I mean? normally it would be it would be kids fighting evil fighting a spirit fighting a demon you have kids creating something that will may or may not be evil we'll get to that but where did you get the idea from Um, so
1: this originally, um, a long time ago, maybe like 2016, I started writing a short story that was When I look at it, it's it's heavily inspired by the movie Black Mountain Side, which is like a a Canadian movie about these, like, it's very Lovecraftian. I saw it at the Lovecraft Film Festival. Um, And it's about these miners, these like archaeologists, and they're like digging in, um, you know, like the frozen valleys of of northern Canada. And they dig up some sort of weird thing. And this creature that's a deer... God thing shows up and warns them about it, right? And it, it's a very unsettling figure. And the image they created of this dear God just stayed with me and stayed with me for for like, mm, months. And I was at this art show with my husband. He he likes to paint and he was showing some art and I was taking a little break. I had a little cocktail and I was sitting in a little area and I was like, oh, there's like nothing to do, nobody to talk to. It's really loud. And I looked up and I saw as is often the case. And in many places that you go to in Portland uh, at this time, it was sort of, you know, ironic taxidermy was really in, and there was like a taxidermy deer head on the wall. And, being in this shape, in this place, this dark bar, and seeing it, and I was just like, oh man, I gotta write a story about this creepy deer god thing. And so I wrote this story, which is called The Deer God, and it actually came out in an anthology last year. Um, and the idea was, um, a man who, who his father had made a sacrifice, um, to, to save him from leukemia when he was a kid and now as an adult he wants to help his son who has mental health crises so he like cuts off his toe to get help from the dear god um, and that story got rejected by uh, a magazine and the editor was very kind enough to send me notes about what he thought would make it work better and A lot of the things that he said really resonated with me Um, but when he said them I was like the way to make that fix work would be to make this into a novel Um, and so I went in thinking I want to write a story about a town that worships a dear God but most people don't really know what it is and I played around with that idea for a really long time. uh, And I kept kind of going to it and giving up. And then uh, at a different point, I had had this idea about these kids who uh, start fooling around with the supernatural. And one day, a lot of times when I have projects that I can't make work out, sometimes I will somehow have this leap of intuition that if i slam together two projects that aren't working that it will make some kind of new fantastic thing happen and that just hit me when i was thinking one day about this dear god project i was like what if i take this book that i'm already thinking about having be in like you know my childhood Oregon landscape, and I mashed it together with this deer god concept, what would you get, and how would you tell it? And I was like, I think I have a great idea. <laughs> um, so the deer god kind of evolved and changed quite a bit and became more like more like a deer and less like this creepy thing from the horror movie I saw. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, that, so that's that's kind of like how it all came together it's kind of amazing because I've seen a couple of reviews of the the Deer kings and they got a real sense that this creature was coming out of like the historical past of this town and, and maybe existed before the kids brought it to life and that was something that I hadn't realized I was setting up and it wasn't something I really intended but looking back on the text I'm like oh my gosh they're right there should be like
0: that's what i think i i certainly think it's been there for a while kind of dormant or 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 something it has been used in the past that's the impression i got
1: it's so funny that like when you're writing you kind of can get like shut into your own plans Mm -hmm. and so you think i know exactly what i've done but then you know you're actually surprised if you what you really created and what you did and anyway i guess maybe i should write some prequels <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh see i i also love anything where horror goes back into history so mm. i would read the hell out of that book you know yeah chronicles of the dear saint or something i would happily read that oh good it reminded me so have you ever heard of the phenomenon of the tulpa
1: no oh wait wait tulpa like t-u-l-p-a yeah yeah like from like tibet
0: yeah, yeah. So it's a thing that esoteric thought throws around. It's, it's one of those terms that basically white people have taken and, and just you know commodified. When in fact it means something much more profound than its native culture. <laughs> but yeah, it's the idea that w- with enough will you can create something into being. Um, yeah. And I think it's a, sing- a like a, a singularly creepy idea because you know, cause things like Slenderman, for example, right? Or um, there's even a whole famous experiment this is this is a real thing you can check up called the philip experiment it took place in toronto in the 70s where they this parapsychology department tried to um essentially create a poltergeist and what they did they got loads of people sitting at a table and for months and months they talked and created an entire backstory for this character called philip philip aylesworth i think it was called never existed but they wrote his entire life story talked about him as if it was real and they went back and forth and then months later They tried to summon him through a seance and it worked. They started getting somebody called Philip contacting them. Now, obviously, I don't believe it was a ghost. I think it was almost certainly suggestion or, I don't know, something else. But it's a cool idea. And I just find it such a creepy idea because it's the idea of creativity is always seen as a positive thing. But it can also, in the wrong hands, be destructive Oppenheimer you know look upon me destroyer of worlds all that kind of thing and I think yeah. taking the idea of th- that that literal power of you can create something if you put that in the wrong or irresponsible hands say the hands of children it becomes a very frightening prospect yeah. So I really liked I like that this this supernatural problem came from the kids rather than was pitted against the kids but it, it poses my question simple one is the dear saint evil or is it just a tool you use to expose human evil in this town? I'm not
1: sure. I feel like when it first shows up, maybe it's sort of a, a like a neutral entity. But I think mm-hmm. by the end of the story, it's been contaminated by humans and their evil. You know, like it definitely has become a force for bad
0: well and that's a lovely contrast with with it because if you think about it Pennywise the clown is the the stain on Derry that that corrupts and corrodes all the people who live there yeah whereas you've given us a a supernatural entity which is a kind of neutral vessel that is instead corroded and corrupted by the people it's a a kind of flip reverse of what Pennywise was in a way like I say, this this book, as much as people may think it is not, is is very different from it. Um, speaking of that human evil, I've seen more and more horror emerging from the Pacific Northwest recently. Whether it's set there or whether it's just being written there, um, it feels like Oregon is now putting up a fight against New England as the <laughs> new hot spot for kind of rural horror. Seems odd to me, to be honest, from afar, because I always think of that this, that part of the world as a kind of shining light. You know, it's, it's good coffee and grunge music and progressive politics. And, and I know I, I just described Portland in 1993, but you know what I mean? You know what I mean? <laughs> um, whereas in this book, you make a real point of talking about how, how Portland is a very different world from rural Oregon, where your book is set. It, is there that real demarcation in the state?
1: Oh, absolutely. Um, So Oregon hasn't elected a Republican governor since like the mid 1980s. Um, We're very, our like the Oregon legislature is like super dominated by, as you said, like progressive liberal politics. Um, But when you see a map of Oregon by like voter registration, there's just this blue puddle, and that blue puddle is Portland, and that's all, you know, liberals. And a little river runs down the middle of the state following the main freeway system, which connects, like, all the university towns. Mm-hmm. The rest of Oregon is extremely conservative. Also, Oregon is, is an area where the population is extremely concentrated, and, and the economy is extremely concentrated around one city. So I I think something like 67% of all jobs are in the Portland metropolitan area. And the rest of the state is incredibly undeveloped. There's whole corners like in the southeast Oregon, where the population density is something like one person for every 100 kilometers, I think. It's There's like nobody over there. And the same in Southwest Oregon, most of the land is either owned by the, by the government, like it's a state or national forest, or it's owned by timber companies. So you have vast swathes of this place where there's just, there aren't very few people and the, the people that are there are often there to get away from people there's kind of a, a long history in the Pacific Northwest of, you know, it's it's like an area where serial killers have been able to work without being caught. Um, you know, poachers can work without being caught. It's a, it's a place where people see it as easy to escape from law and order. And there are a lot of people in the, in the Pacific Northwest who I think are very opposed to government control of things. It's definitely a, a lot of areas where people, you know, they are want to be self-sufficient. They think all people should be self-sufficient and they should be armed to the teeth while doing it. So wow. there's definitely a very strong difference uh, between the cities and the rural communities. And there always has been. There's always been a, a lot of tension between the different places um and i also think a big part of the reason why like perhaps in movies i think a big reason why you see a lot of movies be set in washington and oregon is because it's so cheap to make movies in british columbia in canada (laughs) uh and and we we are the closest thing that looks like them
0: (laughs) talking scared is partnering with novelic the book app for people who want their suggestions from fellow readers, not an algorithm. Novelic is the perfect way to curate your TBR list, with real recommendations from fellow-minded readers broken down into genre, including, yep, horror and all adjacent delights. You can download Novelik for free on iOS or Android devices and get browsing right away, or join a book club for more in-depth chat on your favourite topic. The Talking Scared Club is up and running now for Patreon members. Try Novelic for a nicer way to find your next read. That, this is quite a good way to segue into your, your other book, The Secret Skin, because they're very different stories. But the thing they both share is that they draw out the kind of recent history of racism in the region. In both the Deer Kings and in the Secret Skin, racism and specifically the presence of the KKK kind of mars the landscape. And is I had no idea that was the case. I had no idea that those dickheads got that far north. <laughs>
1: Unfortunately, yes. Um, When the United States was first adding states to its boundaries, uh, you know, it had this idea of the Mason-Dixon line, right? They would allow a state in that was a slave state, and they would allow us. Then the next state in would be a non-state, slave state. And the idea was that there should be a balance of power between the two different, you know, types of states. And Oregon was going to be a non-slave state, but they also they wanted to be politically not as involved with this this whole discussion of slavery. And so their solution is not to be like slavery is bad, let's kidnum it. They just said our solution is that we're not going to allow black people to live in our state. So the Constitution of Oregon the state specifically outlawed allowing black people to live in our state and to own property. Um, And that, you know, that wasn't officially scrubbed off the books until like the late, I want to say it's like, I think it was erased from the constitution in like 2002 or something like that. It stopped being the law in, you know, like 1960 something. But anyway, so you're talking about a place that, specifically was designed not to allow Black people to live there. And that policy, you know, polluted the development of the state. On top of that, you have like, Oregon's treatment of uh, Native people was pretty terrible and awful. So when I when I go to write horror, it is so easy to get inspired by Oregon's history it's there's just a lot of really unpleasant things that have happened here
0: yeah I mean it it, it feels strangely trivial to go back to fiction after you've just told me that because that is ludicrously horrific
1: right <laughs> I was gonna say I in like the 1940s Portland was actually the site of like the first Japanese internment camp, you know, like they rounded up all the people in the Pacific Northwest who are of Japanese extraction and parked them in what is now the expo center until they like packed them off to more awful places. So just over and over, just it doesn't matter who you are. If you're not a white person, <laughs> you've been in this state, I am very sorry because it's pretty ugly. <laughs>
0: Grunge music does not make up for it. That is a terrible legacy. I, I had no idea. Um, I mean, it does make, as you say, for good, for good gothic. And I, as I say, it feels trivial to to transition to, into a a story now. But but let's do it. I mean, it, in your novella, Secret Skin, um, you're playing very much with the gothic, aren't you? This is this is the kind of story in which a woman returns to a a, a sprawling mansion and encounters haunting things therein. One of which, on the periphery, is kind of racial violence and racial prejudice and things like that. Um it, it's it's a gothic tale, but Well, I mean, it's so gothic that you start with the line, Last Night I Dreamed of Stormbreak, which immediately locates us, you know, De Maurier's Rebecca with Last Night I Dreamed of Mandalay. I'm assuming that's intentional.
1: Absolutely.
0: But Interestingly, you give this story its own designation on the title, Sawmill Gothic. Now, I saw that on the cover and I got confused at first because I thought, (laughs) is it a series? Is this this like a a series of books or is it an imprint or something? But it's an actual term that you've coined, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, You know, so before... Portland was on the map for, you know, donuts and and great music. Oregon was kind of like a cultural backwater. Um, And, you know, if you said you were from Oregon, people were like, you guys still fighting Indians back there? Her, her, her. You know, (laughs) and and people didn't really take it seriously as a cultural place because, you know there was like nothing here except loggers and wilderness and so uh that sort of stuck with me growing up here. I think a lot of Canadians kind of grew up with that same sort of feeling like there's no real culture where you live, and there's nothing worth writing about about where you live because it's it's just hicks and you know snow people or whatever so after, like when I was in college, I read Jane Eyre and I loved it. Um, I'd always loved horror stories and stuff. But here was a book that was like the true canon of English literature. And it just felt so gloriously rich and scrumptious. And I mean, it's uh, I, there's sure Bertha is like a real person, but at the same time, she kind of just is a ghost in that house. You know, it has a feeling of a haunted house story. And so I loved Gothic literature and I, you know, I, I can't tell you how much I love like The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson and DeMaurier's Rebecca and books like that. And so I remember thinking this was actually, I think right around a decade ago, I was thinking, could you have a Gothic novel set in Oregon? And like, what would it even be like? Like, could you put like a great romance in a plant landscape full of just, you know, hicks and, and loggers and sawmills and stuff. And so The Secret Skin like kind of came out of this dream of making the terms Sawmill Gothic make sense. Um, It took a long time. I started writing it as a novel, you know, a decade ago and gave up on it because Although I just had a really hard time sorting out the plot. And then um, in about 2017, a friend of mine started editing for Tor.com and she was editing novellas and she had always really liked the idea of the sawmill Gothic. And she said, you know, maybe you should try writing this as a novella for me. So I was like, oh, that's a great idea. And I had recently been camping out on the oregon coast and revisited this really fantastic place which is a state park now but in the 19 i want to say 1905 or so they built this like wonderful beautiful mansion and fantastic gardens on a cliff on the oregon coast i mean this house is like straight up gothic manor kind of thing um it did burn down and then the, the family wound up donating the land to the state. Um, but I was like, ah, oh, here is a real Oregon historical gem of this house that really existed. Um, it was the, the family made their money from saw milling and the timber industry. So it ties right in with my idea of the sawmill Gothic and, I just went to town. It was the perfect place to set the story.
0: <laughs> well, can I ask, first of all, was that friend Ellen Datlow?
1: No, I I do. I am friends with Ellen Datlow, but uh, this gal, her name is Christy Yant. She's actually the um, co-editor-in-chief now of Fantasy Magazine.
0: Okay, right. You're You're not the first person I've spoken to whose novella has been dragged from them by a demanding tour editor. But normally it's Ellen Datlow.
1: <laughs> so. uh, yeah, Ellen. Ellen has a way of getting stories out of people. She's terrific.
0: But yeah, yeah,
1: yeah this story, this this book, for some reason, just didn't wind up being a good fit for Tor.com. Um, but luckily, uh, this new publishing company, Neon Hemlock, they have they kind of came on the scene. I, I think they started publishing anthologies in 2019. And uh, one of my other friends had published a novella with them and just kind of raved about how terrific they were to work with. So I had this novella, it needed a home, and they had an open call for submission. So I sent it to them. And yeah, it turned out to be the perfect place for it. And I had a a really great time working with that editor and the artwork turned out super cool and uh yeah the the book's gotten a lot of buzz too so i'm really happy
0: well you mentioned there the fantasy magazine um and it would be remiss of me not to ask you about your own work in magazines um specifically your editor in chief position at nightmare magazine so obviously Nightmare is a massive deal in the horror community, one of the big fiction markets. What's it like having the big red pen
1: Oh, gosh, it's really fun. You know, I've worked in editing things. I mean, I was actually the assistant editor at Fantasy Magazine in like 2012 or something like that. So I've, I've been doing editorial and editorial adjacent stuff for a long time now. Um, but like getting to be totally in charge at Nightmare has just been an absolute blast. It's so fun working with the writers and Um, It's really fun to try to pick out stories that will go together to make an issue that that's really fun. And uh, I'm having a really good time of it. It's also I don't think even though like I've been writing and selling short stories for a really long time, I don't think I really understood like the responsibility level of being the editor in charge of the magazine until I was officially the editor in chief there because mm-hmm. I mean there's this huge when so so nightmare is like a really big horror market, and if you get published there, it can be a really important really fabulous exposure for a writer and It's like, I don't want to use the words, I have the power to change people's lives. But at the same time, I kind of have the power to change people's lives. It's like, oh, gosh, that's kind of a lot. Yikes. I'm just a dork who really, really likes horror stories. All right,
0: then. Well, here we go. I mean, I'm going to ask this question now on the pretense that I'm asking for my listeners. I'm really asking for me. (laughs) What what's the number one tip you'd give someone looking to get their stuff published in Nightmare?
1: Uh, the number one tip I would say is try to make your story just as full of character as possible, because that's really what makes horror work. I think is being really immersed in the characters' world. It, it it takes a lot of work to get your prose to really connect with your character, and it's worth just take your time and and try to to do that.
0: You heard it here first, guys. Character is the answer. Well, right, Wendy. We've covered some really meaty stuff here today. We've talked about all kind of things from you know racism to belief to coming of age, you know, big meaty issues. I want to finish something, though, that's been on my mind since I finished The Deer King, something I must know, okay? Yep. What's a Pershing? <gasps> oh!
1: <laughs> so a Pershing is a donut that is um, very similar to a cinnamon roll. So it's a yeasted, enriched dough like you would have in a regular donut. And then it's, it's sort of rolled up around like a cinnamon sugar thing and then sliced and then it, of course it gets deep fat fried because it's a donut and then it has a very simple plain glaze on top so it's it's like a fried donut it's basically the best possible donut
0: i, I should explain there, there are bakeries in in both of your stories weirdly um <laughs> it's true. there are bakeries that you you write in such a way as to make me starving i was reading this book in bed last night thinking we've got nothing in the house to eat and i'm just like really hungry um and i had to know what a pershing was because all your characters were very very enthusiastic about it and i had no idea what it was so there you go (laughs) what a way to end an interview
1: that's probably the most important question about the book i think
0: i thought so i thought so yeah well can we finish off with the questions i ask every guest if that's okay sure So first of all, I'd like you, if possible, to recommend a book for my listeners and tell us why.
1: Well, I think since we've been talking about coming of age, I would definitely recommend the book... The Shadow Year by Jeffrey Ford. It's a terrific coming-of-age novel about a boy growing up in the Midwest. I think it's like maybe the very early 1960s. There are some very creepy characters and a lot of weird, magical stuff that happens. So if you like coming-of-age novels with creepy, weird, and magical stuff, it is going to really suit you to a T. Oh,
0: wow. Wow. I did not know this. I always call like the holy triumvirate of coming-of-age horror It, Boy's Life, and Summer of Night by Dan Simmons. And just to give listeners with my with, who share my fixation a bit of a thrill, I'm going to read the first line of the synopsis. I've just Googled it. In New York's Long Island, in the unpredictable decade of the 1960s, a young boy laments the approaching close of summer and the advent of sixth grade. I don't care about the plot beyond that point. I just want to read that book. Thank you so much for bringing that to my attention. Let alone the listeners, I'm delighted to know about that. I'm going to read that immediately.
1: Oh, good. Geoffrey Ford is a fantastic writer. His prose is wonderful, so I think you will have a good time reading it.
0: Yes, definitely. I uh, I need to read more Geoffrey Ford. I've only read the one, the novella he brought out a few years ago that I can't remember the name of um about the church but anyway it's all i've read but i will read the shadow year thank you very much my last question wendy is what truly scares you
1: well this is a very niche sort of fear um brilliant i've had goldfish
0: on this before i've had goldfish and and (laughs) gaps between stairs so have at it Uh,
1: okay so i'm very afraid of being in a car and driving next to high drop-offs or drop-offs that are next to water uh you know growing up on a where we lived which is just like the Deer kings you had this long drive from the real town to like where our house was and you would drive through this canyon, which had a creek running through it. So in in one place, there's like, a I don't know, like a, a 100-foot cliff dropping down into this steep ravine. But in other places, it would be just like, you know, a few feet to the creek. But like maybe in the winter, it would be flooding. So the creek would be right there. And you'd be going around these corners. And you just like, you can't help but feel like, one false move and you're just going to fly off in there so even as an adult oh i can't look sometimes when i'm driving like next to a river or or on a cliff or something it just gives me the heebie-jeebies
0: well as someone who had 10 years of ptsd after a car crash i can feel your pain so i am i am with you on that one and by hell did you invest that into the Deer kings there's a lot of driving <laughs> and a lot of car accidents in that book it's true well, this has been a great chat. You've given me another book to add to the canon of coming-of-age stories. Well, two books, including the Jeffrey Ford one. Sorry we couldn't talk longer about The Secret Skin, but everyone go and read it. It's got a really nice riff and play on on traditional gothic in a, in a different setting. Um, yeah, I, I will look forward to whatever you write next, Wendy, and I will be penning character full stories for Nightmare. So, Wendy Wagner, thank you for talking Scared.
1: Yay, thank you so much, Neil, and good luck on the stories.
0: The comparison to Hot Fuzz is absolutely spot on. Not only does it get across the sheer weirdness of the Deer King's small town setting, but it also totally captures that tone of being an outsider in a place that doesn't like them. The fact that she used that film to sum up the experience of small-town Oregon also shows just how much these places are the same the world over, because Hot Fuzz is my town as well. If you haven't seen it, or if you're wondering what the hell we're talking about, it's a comedy, horror, mystery, action thing by Edgar Wright, the director of Shaun of the Dead, about the smallest, pettiest, most sinister town. I I don't know why I'm even bothering. You've definitely seen it already. Go watch Hot Fuzz, if not. But back to Wendy and the Deer Kings. I really like this book. Obviously, you know my taste by now, so that will be no surprise. But it really does fit with that holy triumvirate of coming-of-age stories that I mentioned in the conversation. All the ingredients are there, but they're given a shake of weirdness that offers something new. And I especially like the fact that the supernatural aspect is courted rather than confronted. That's an interesting spin. There's also an unusual slippage in the structure of the novel. Now, I can't actually tell whether this is intentional or just a happy accident. I should, I should have asked. But it often feels in the book like the timing of events is slightly awry. Things seem to overlap or happen too far apart, and, and it all comes together to summon this sense of memory rather than narration, which actually suits the nostalgic note of the novel to a T. It may be that none of that is intended, and, and that Wendy would be horrified to hear me say this, but even if it is an inadvertent flaw, it actually worked for me. I enjoyed The Dear Kings more than The Secret Skin, but that again is due to my own tastes and my preference for novels over novellas. Now I know that's really booking the trend at the minute, with everyone clamouring for the next great novella, but I like longer works, generally, with more texture and more space to lull you into the story. Don't get me wrong, a great novella is welcome, always welcome, especially considering the endless pressure I'm under to read for this show. But just like Kaskor's Nothing But Blackened Teeth, I would have liked to have seen the story of the secret skin expanded to give me more depth, because it is a great story, and the transposition of the traditional gothic to this Oregon setting is great. I am all for sawmill gothic going forwards. Speaking of going forwards... I have good news and bad news. First of all, the sad news is that Peter Straub won't be appearing on the show anytime soon. Apologies, as I know many of you are looking forward to it, and I I hate to promise and not deliver. However, Peter reached out to me to apologise and say that he's still recovering from his surgery and he doesn't feel in the best position to do the interview. I responded, passing on my love, your love, and stressed how strong his fan base is, even using this show's audience as a small sample. I hope you all understand, and that we can all join in wishing Peter well. I would still recommend that every single one of us goes away and reads Ghost Story over the Christmas break, because it is the best ever winter horror novel, in my opinion, and it's the right opinion. On a more positive note, I've got a very exciting guest coming for the first episode of 2022. All I'll say is that I would recommend you all start catching up on John Connolly's wonderful Charlie Parker series right now. Going into the new year, I'd be really interested to know if there is anyone you would like to hear from. I do try to fit the schedule around new releases, but increasingly I'm realising that isn't always the most important thing, so... If you just love to hear me speak to a certain author, let me know. Even better, let them know and tell them how great it would be for them to come on this show. I'm sure if we all get in touch with Stephen King via Twitter, you might do it. Please though, please, do not take this as an order to harass your favourite writer, please. And speaking of getting in touch, I've now made it easier to reach me. All the social media accounts are now the same. They're all Talk Scared Pod, and that's on Twitter, Instagram, and Satan Help Us, TikTok. If you want to see me release increasingly grumpy videos and occasionally see Ted, then, yeah, give me a follow on there. You can also email direct to Talkingscaredpod at gmail.com, and I do try and respond to all emails. It's been a busy few months, so if you've written in and heard nothing, give me a nudge. Lastly, you can support the show and show me some love via Patreon. The link's in the show notes, or you can just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. I've just thrown some bonus stuff on there with Richard McLean Smith from Unexplained Pod, in which I get a bit ranty about religion in horror, and we talk about Midnight Mass. Yeah, it's good. I'd like to say a massive thanks to Janelle Jansen, who is the latest addition to the Patreon mob. Thanks, Janelle. Okay, on we go into the dying embers of the year. Next week I'm back with something truly appallingly horrific and not at all in keeping with the season. Insert evil laugh. Until then though, oil your bike chain, pump up your tyres and remember that stranger things will be forgotten but goonies never die. Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared.